Hey everybody, today we're going to hang with, jam with, talk with, plug in with, trade licks with, and listen to album tracks with the great Richie Kotzen. Yeah, that's Richie on his new album, Salting Earth, super soulful. I gotta say I'm super thankful that his friends at Tech 21 made this episode with him possible because so many of you have been asking for a Richie Kotzen episode. And here it is, and Tech 21 is such a great company. I've literally been using their stuff since, gosh, 91? When they came out with the original tube amp emulator, delicious analog circuitry called the Sansamp Classic. That's how they bill it now. This little pedal, man, you go straight into the recording desk or straight into the PA system and it sounded killer and it still does. Similar circuitry in their trademark 60 amplifiers, these little combos. I love those things, I have two of them. I used to use them on tour in the late 90s. I even had flight cases made up for mine. That's how much I use those suckers. Love them, man, you know what? Uh, Les Paul even used one for 10 years. He played one on stage at Carnegie Hall. As a matter of fact, that's the trademark 60. Richie Kotzen has a killer product that he co-designed with Tech 21, which you're going to learn about. It's called the Richie Kotzen RK5 Signature Fly Rig. This little pedal, man, five buttons at your feet, but yet so sleek and portable it fits into your gig bag. Great for traveling musicians or even just musicians who want a compact little stage rig that does everything. Fly Rig has a killer Sansamp section, delicious analog tone got a delay section you know all the knobs light up beautifully on each section like different colors it's like christmas at your feet it's got reverb that you can dial in or out and it's got a great overdrive section on richie's model it's called the omg overdrive as in oh my golly we're gonna give away one please please enter at guitarplayer.com slash kotzen and you might win the richie kotzen rk5 signature fly rig that's guitarplayer.com slash K-O-T-Z-E-N. Yeah, you're hearing tracks from Richie's tasty new album, Salting Earth is what it's called, and it's officially being released on Friday, which is April 14th. Dig it. You can check it out at richiecotson.com. You can also see the tour dates. Richie's got all kinds of stuff coming up, starting in L.A. First show of the worldwide tour, April 21st, then around America, then, gosh, Brazil, July 5th, then on to Australia, Japan, and Europe. Richie is a globe trotter. He's done so much stuff, you know. If you know his career at all, you know he was in Poison, had a couple of hit singles with them. He even did Mr. Big for a minute when Paul Gilbert was taking a break. And gosh, man, he played Fusion in the band Vertu with Stanley Clark and Lenny White. And those guys are straight up legends. Yeah, so I really learned a lot about Richie finally. I mean, I've known him for years, but like, first of all, on the hilarious side of things, Richie is an epic 
prankster, as you're going to find out by the end of this episode. <laughs> he takes pranking to like a deep sort of Andy Kaufman level, I might say. The other thing I learned about Richie is that he is just so crafty. You know, he's got this new house. Well, first of all, I stopped by his old house accidentally because the publicist had given me an old address, but that's okay. I drove over to his new house, super close, and the new house is surrounded by mountains like 360 degrees in Santa Monica Mountains, Malibu, basically. Just crazy. And just this house is hypnotic in the way that it's laid out. Like you could literally get lost in it when you're first walking in there. You're like, wait, how do we get over here? There's something a little bit, something a little bit supernatural about this place. High ceilings, beautiful beams of wood crossing the living room. Beautiful big red piano in there, grand piano, which Richie started playing when I first walked in. Total multi-instrumentalist. And so, yeah, I'm there, and he starts showing me all the stuff he's done. Like, he ordered some special floorboards from Florida. I had them shipped over here just because they matched perfectly the ones in this one bedroom, and he installed them by hand. Each one, I think he might have had help from his pops, which is super cool. He also did all the molding on the doorways and, like, finished them to match the antique looking wood around crazy poured cement for his fire pit outside by the pool and this guy is hardcore about guitar gear in the same way hands on tweaker we're gonna set up in the living room at this house and i'm playing through a little roland you know portable amp cube set dirty and Richie is plugged into, well, I'll let him tell you what he's plugged into, but he's got the clean tone until the very, very end when we switch and he rocks out on the dirty tone. But even through the clean tone, gosh, he's just so sick. Here's a preview. Did I mention that like some of his other solo albums, Richie plays all the instruments on Salting Earth? Wow. So yeah, I had a spectacular time hanging out at Richie's pad for an afternoon, and I think you are about to have one too. And I got to meet Richie's awesome better half, the rock star bass player from Brazil, Julia Lage. And we even get visited at one point by Richie's dog, Zeus. Man, it's a family affair. So you know what? Let's thank Guitar Player, who's celebrating 50 years in print this year. Go Guitar Player! For helping make this possible, especially thank Tech21. Head to guitarplayer.com slash enter to win that pedal that fly ass fly rig from tech 21 always got to thank zoom for the recorders that i use to record this and remember as joe satriani said in episode one keep it alive till you're 95 my name is jude gold thanks for listening let's fire up the copter That's great. 
So what amp are you plugging through over there behind the grand piano over there? So that, that amp is something that I actually built. It is a Tweed Deluxe, technically, but I went online and found, a, like, they sell kits, you know? Yeah. And so uh, I have experience, you know, soldering and building electronic things from when I was a kid, so I challenged myself to build an amp, and uh, it's a great amp. I've actually recorded a lot with it, and I've gigged with it. Um, it's really cool, but now I have my own signature model amp. It's coming out what? very soon. Yeah. Have you talked about this publicly? No, I, I, I kind of, I kind of put something on Instagram because a bunch of boxes showed up out in the driveway <laughs> and woke up one morning and there they were. Um, but it, the company is called victory and they're yeah. in the UK. Sure. And, um, the, the designer, the main guy there, Martin Kidd, built my, previous signature model amp which was the rk100 because he was at cornford right right yeah. yeah and to my knowledge they're not produced they haven't been producing amps for a very very long time so he went on and started a new company and um so i was gonna do an i was talking to another company about doing an amp and it, it didn't it wasn't going in the direction that i wanted it to go and so i put the idea on ice for a while and then I don't know how I ran into Martin. Somehow I, I reconnected with him, and then uh, we came up with this amp. It's really cool. It's um, the first incarnation that I'm going to use on my upcoming tour is a 112 combo uh, with an extension cabinet, and then I can link those together if I need to be louder. You know, I can link them together and have four speakers running, but I find that one stack is enough. And then um, it's 50 watts. Uh, it can the one I have is with the L34s, but you can put 6L6s in it. But the thing I love, three, three knobs to control the, the amp. You have master volume, gain, and a tone knob as far as the amp goes. Then built into the amp, just because we have room, we put in a tremolo and a spring reverb. So it's pretty cool. No um, effects loop? Or Anna, yeah, of course. Yeah, we know guys love that, yeah. Because yeah. I know that you are not necessarily using as many effects. I'm using it now for the delay because I have yeah. two delays set up now. I have the fly rig in front, which gives me a kind of a crazy delay because you know it comes back loud, right? And then I have another um, delay that goes through the effects loop. So that is a more subtle kind of delay setup. So I have two different delay things happening. So I'm using the effects loop now. In the past, I didn't use it so much, but now I'm using it. Well, that's great. Congratulations. And what's the, the tonal color of the amp that you're really going for with your new signature? It really has, you know, I wanted to have, the thing I loved about the old amp was the gain. I mean, you can literally plug in and just hold a note forever. And it, it, it feeds back musically. It sounds fantastic. Uh, and then you turn the volume data down and it cleans up. And then it has a boost button on the floor. So you can set it for a nice rhythm tone with the volume full up, put it back a little bit, it'll clean up really nice. And then when the volume's full up on the guitar, you hit the boost and you got a screaming lead tone. It's kind of, to, to answer your question, it's kind of has like a, a Marshall thing as far as I wanted that percussiveness. So unlike the Fender, it has a solid state rectifier like the, the Marshalls that I was playing. So, you know, it's a tube amp, it's all tube, but right. it has the uh, solid state rectifier, which to me is faster, you know, it gives you that attack. Yeah, I like those. I mean, I got a Fender Vibe Reverb hand wired and you can switch it 
back and forth. And mm -hmm. for some reason, I always like the solid state more. Because it's faster. It's more, um, it depends on how you play. Like if you're just playing like fat chords and like chimey stuff, then the tube rectifier has a, a great thing. But if you play anything aggressive and really fast with a, with a, a higher gain tone, the tube rectifier is going to kind of sag out a little bit. So it's not going to have, the notes are not going to have the percussive impact. That's why the that's why I love the Plexi Marshalls because they were tube amps, yeah. but um, with a solid state rectifier, it, it it has that kind of thump and hits you in the chest, you know. That's killer, man. Well, congratulations. It's uh, what's it called again? The RK. Oh yeah, I'm gonna have my initials involved in everything. Right? <laughs> There's gonna be an RK hot sauce coming out as well, an RK wine. Um, actually, they are doing. I, a you're wine. funny, man. I've known you for a few years. I never fully know when you're joking, but this sounds real. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm making a I'm making a fool out of myself. No, but we do have the the fly rig. You know. Uh, yeah, it's RK RK five, with and the, then this is the RK fifty, I believe, because it's fifty watts. And the Telecaster signature Fender Telecaster does not have an RK on it. I don't think. Maybe Maybe it does. I don't know what it's called. It probably does have an RK on it. Who knows? I, well, I, I can't pay attention to all this stuff. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I remember doing the uh, Guitar Player Magazine, Guitar Superstars, like kind of like American Idol for guitarists, and you were a judge. Remember, that? Well, I was talking like this, wasn't I? Right. <laughs> no, but you know, I really love what you're trying to do, but gosh, I just wish you'd slow down. <laughs> yeah, you you went through about six contestants with that accent on, and finally one dude was brave enough when he, when he was getting his comments from you after his performance, like, dude, why are you talking with this British accent anyway? And then I think you just cracked up and stopped from that point forward. <laughs> you know what's funny? I, I kind of lost my mind one summer, and that was probably when I, I was in England for quite some time. And I started emulating the way my friend spoke. Right, and everything, you know, great, right, lovely. Cheerio. And so I came home, and for the entire summer, I spoke in that accent. I didn't deviate no matter what. And I went into, like, Bed Bath & Beyond, and I brought pillows in, and then um, I had to return them, and I'm talking. Everything I did, I said with this British accent. And what was really interesting is that people treated me differently. I mean, I felt like I was being treated with much more respect than had I been speaking the way I really speak. So it was very interesting. And I did it for a good three months. And I think I made all my friends really crazy. <laughs> I wonder if those guitar contestants tr treated you differently. I don't know. You know. That was a while. And, you know, I remember then we were all kind of pretty sauced up, if I remember correctly. We had yeah, you guys were up in the balcony. up there and Jack Daniels and the whole bit. I think it was you and Luke and maybe... Uh, Hoffa up there too? Elliot Easton. Yeah, Mor Hoffa, yeah. Rafael Moriera, yeah. and um, maybe Joe Satriani. Was Joe there too? He did a few of them. Yeah. And you did, I can't forget who was at which. But, uh, yeah, oh man, that was fun though. Yeah, yeah. So, well, let's listen to a cut from your new record, which I'm really digging. I mean, dude, you are seriously like prince of shred guitar. <laughs> I don't That's like cool. to use the word shred so much, but you know what I mean? Like... You played all the instruments on this? On this record, I did. You've done that before, I've right? I've done it a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. nothing new. But, you know, it, it ends up being that way, not because I'm a selfish bastard, but really it has a lot to do with the way that I write. And I go in there, I start working, I have ideas, and next thing you know, it's finished. And I, and I listen back, and I'm like, you know, I, I could call someone to come replay the drums or come replay the bass, but like, why? It sounds done. It sounds like it's working. I'm happy with it. And that's the only variable I can use, by the way, is if I really love it. 
if I really love it, then I know it's done. If I'm questioning things, then maybe I need some help. And, and when I need help, I call people in, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I love the first song. It sounds almost like you're tuning up, and then <laughs> all of a sudden it turns into a lick. I'm turning the on the fly rig. I'm setting the delay. Literally, I'm setting the delay setting, and and there's a drift control on the fly rig. And so when you turn that, it goes here, here, here. I think I, ha- I was in record and I was messing around with the damn thing and I, and I recorded it and then I, I, I cut it and spliced it to the front and I, and I then I wore I do a lot of crazy things in the studio. So that's cool. I, now I know how you got that warbly sound with the fly rig, which uh, you customized that. I mean, they had the original one, but you got the OMG well, I'll setting. Tell you, I'll tell you where, where this came from. The whole thing was my idea. And so, oh, really? Absolutely. And so what? even the name of the thing was what came from me. What happened was... Um, I was I had been doing a lot of fly dates and that's what we call them we call them fly dates because you fly in and you fly out especially in Latin America you go down to Brazil do five shows every show you're flying city to city you fly over to down to Chile you fly over to Argentina and every time you go somewhere they they oftentimes have a different rig you know you ask for what you ask for but sometimes you just get what you get and so after doing this for so many years I realized I can't be lugging a pedal board around and all this stuff. I need to travel light. I mean, everything from wardrobe to the guitar I took, I made sure everything was super light and, and super streamlined. So I took my favorite delay, which was a Tech 21 delay, and I took an overdrive that I had been using, and I was playing through Fender Twins, so I took the switching mechanism. I took those six switches and their controls and put them into a small electrical box, like one of those long electrical boxes that I got at the at the Electronic City, you know, drilled all wow. the holes and just put everything in it, hardwired it, so that I had an input and an output, and bang, there was my rig, and then I had another switch to plug, go back to the Fender amp, and there was a switching. So when when I got on stage, I just threw that thing on the ground and plugged into it, and bang. And and you can see it in the Winery Dogs actually uh, first DVD. I was using it in Japan. It went all over with me, and so I showed it to Andrew from Tech Twenty One, and uh, um, we decided to make you know make it professionally. That's great, and, and yeah. do it the right way. Andrew yeah. Barta, yeah, I met him in the late '90s when I was a big Sansamp fan of the the with the original Sansamp. Oh yeah, and the thing about the fly rig, which is really interesting to know that you were there from the ground floor. Is like if you see the pictures of it, you know, it looks like a, the si- a certain size. When you actually see one in person, it's amazingly compact. Like it it's is. not so small that you can't stomp on it. Right. But it's, it really will fit in no, your guitar you bag. Know, he was able to really find the right components. Those little knobs that light up, you know, that oh, was yeah, all him. I mean, that was really fantastic. Um, and uh, putting the Sans amp in there because now my version of the fly rig had the switching for the fender twin well obviously not everybody plays the fender twin so it'd be useless to people but to take to occupy that space he put in a sans amp 
which also has a reverb. So for me, um, if I want to revoice an amp, you know, if I go somewhere and I'm playing through an amp that isn't yeah. to my liking, I can revoice it with the sand zip and leave it on. Or if I go somewhere and I'm playing through an amp that sounds great, I can flatten the sans amp and just use the reverb. So it's it's really versatile and and it's cool. It's durable. I love it. No, it's very cool. I mean, uh, I, I I'm remembering now that I reviewed it for Guitar Player Magazine, and I definitely gave it a great review because I used it on several dates, and I definitely pointed out the way the knobs light up like that, which yeah. is so cool when you have a certain section of it engaged. But the other thing that's just so cool for me was I could, you know you could just run it straight into the loop. It's kind of like you're cheating the Marshall amp or something. If you're somewhere and you just want to go straight into the loop and use the power section, mm-hmm. you've got an instant amplifier at your feet. Oh yeah. Exactly. And you don't and you don't have to use the preamp EQ or something if you want to keep it real simple. That's a great idea. I've never done that. Yeah, it goes straight into a power amp cuz and then you're using the sans amp all night. And you keep the sans amp on. Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. I got to try that. So that's that's cool. But um let's go to some real simple piece of gear. Mm-hmm. A pick, which I don't see you using that much these days. Not today. I don't think I've seen you use one. No, I don't have one today. <laughs> you know what happened? It's an interesting talking point for a lot of people. They asked me about it because, you know, I kind of went from one extreme to the other. But I still use a, a pick, you know, uh, when I need it, when I want that sound. But really live, I don't bother with it on the electric guitar. On acoustic, I still do because I like the certain kind of strummy sound that I get. Um but live on on the new show that we're doing that we put together, I'm not using one. Um, but on the record, I do from time to time. But you know, it happened in uh, it happened many years ago in Brazil. I was on a tour and I was really unhappy with the way I sounded, and I needed I needed to do something to change my perception and my feeling uh, and my playing. So. I knew that by practicing in my room the night before the gig, I wasn't going to do too much damage. I'm not going to get suddenly really good in one night of practice. So I said, what can I eliminate? You know, I'm not going to cut a finger off, but I decided to forget about the pick and challenge myself. Can I get through the show without a pick? So I got on stage and it was scary. And I had done certain songs without the pick, but not the entire show. So instantly sweep, sweep, Picking went out the window, alternate picking, all these things slowed me down. And I went back to phrasing again and phrasing, you know, really well uh, compared to what I was doing. And so that evolved. And then now over time, all those techniques that I gave up, I found a way to bring them back. So if I'm playing, you know, I can kind of do a... So now I, I got before I couldn't do that the first night. For example, when you know the alternate picking thing, I, I now I can. I have my trills doing it that way, rather than this way. So that the after time or like. Um, so you for that one, you what were you doing there? You're using your thumb and then. Well, I'll hit an octave on the low one, like here. Yeah. One, two, three, one, two, three, one. And the th- but you know I don't think about this too much. Yeah. So I have, yeah, that's what's happening. It's like ring, sorry, it's like thumb and then ring index and maybe middle. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if that's an example of something that, you know, the first night when I dropped the pick, can't do it anymore. Now I found a way to, to do it. And so it's, it's always evolving, you know. And then, of course, there's certain, there's certain things that you can do that you can't do with a pick, you know. I don't know what, but... simple things I'm demonstrating the same thing again 
a lot of times I'm one of those players that I don't know what I do until after I've done it. And then I got to go back and figure out, oh, yeah. what the hell did I do there on that solo? <laughs> now, how about for a single note kind of stuff, like when you're doing more lead guitar? Or well, how does yeah, that... then if I'm soloing. That, whatever I just did, is something I've done my whole life. I would just hold the pick here, but now I don't yeah. have the pick, so... Most of the time I'm doing this about back and forth. So that's a, your thumb and your index finger back and forth. All right, let me see. Now there, because I want to play these notes, yeah. I have these other two fingers to play them. Nice. Or I can go. Like if I do an ascending line like that, then it's these three fingers. like. So you're doing the thumb, then the hammer on, and then the index and middle yeah. on the next strings. I would love to uh, just play something underneath you and hear you do a little bit of that Go solo. Ahead. See what happens. Um, maybe a progression from one of your tunes. Uh, okay. Um, These new tunes are so great, man. They're so singable and simple, but so explosive at the same time. It's just soulful. And there's like gospel in, in them and stuff. There's so much stuff in your music, man. It's you, you're, yeah, you, you break all the walls down. It's really yeah. cool. You know, it's funny as uh, I grew up listening to like a lot of um, hearing what I, you know, when I was a kid, hearing a lot of R&B stuff, which was like, you know, like the OJs and the Spinners. And then, of course, Stevie Wonder was my first concert. Oh, yeah. Where'd you see him at? Valley Forge Music Fair on a round stage that, you know, moved. And then right after that, it was George Benson. So I really love that kind of music. And then I, later as I got older, then I got into more guitar-driven stuff and rock music, you know, like The Who and Led Zeppelin and what have you. So there's this weird kind of pendulum swing, you know, between the old R&B stuff and, the, you know, Sly and the Family Stone and Parliament. And then suddenly I'm listening to, you know, the Eagles and The Who and I guess what you'd call classic rock, so... Anyway, that's I it. I love it. Well, you got like a song like Make It Easy. The chorus is huge. It almost sounds like a, you know, a Blues Brothers production or something. You got like clavinet and background singers. Can I tell you a story about that song? Yeah, it's sure. interesting. Um, because you brought it up. And people ask me, like, you know, how you write a record, whatever. And my records are written over the course of a long time. Because, for example, you have the song Grammy that I literally woke up at 3.30 in the morning and had an idea and went in by 7.30, that track was done. done that's you're hearing the final master 
Then you have the song you mentioned, Make It Easy, where it's been on my hard drive since 2003. Wow. With no vocals. A, a make-believe vocal to mark what the melody and phrasing were, singing nonsense. But that guitar solo, the chord progression, which off the top of my head I don't remember, you can show me, um, the bass and the drums and the solo, I recorded back in 2003 on my Strat. So when I was finishing, when I was recording this record, I was going through stuff, and I finished End of Earth, I, I finished Divine Power, I finished Meds, and my rock, I thought, you're on the verge of a record, you've got the core of the record, and I had um, This Is Life. So those five songs to me were the core of the record. What else do I have? That I, and I went back and I found that, and I loaded it into the system, and I thought, just write some words. And I started listening to it, and the words came to me. And then I went back and I added the B3 and I added the clavinet. And somehow it fit. It made sense to be on the record. So, yeah, Great tune. <laughs> All right, how's it go? So you play, tell me. I never do. I never. I never do this. Like I never sit with another guitar player and jam. I did when I was a kid all the time. I haven't done I, what we man. just did. I haven't done that in years and years and years and years. And you know who I used to do it with was Greg Howe when I was like eighteen or seventeen or eighteen. I remember several times driving up to Easton from Reading, going to his house, and he was already really you know internationally known. And I would sit with him and watch him and play and this and that. And he was kind of like, I didn't know this, but back then I guess he was talking to Mike Varney and Mike was like, yeah, have this kid come up, check him out, tell me if he can play, what's his story, blah, blah, blah. So 
It's kind of funny. Because um, by that point, he was already signed. Oh, yeah. His record was out, and he was, you know. Yeah, he's been on this podcast. He told that story. Like, the first time he ever met Barney was when he called him up and said, Hey, kid, you want a record deal? <laughs> well, I got, I got a story. When I was trying to get Mike's attention, I, oh, I was about 16 or 17, and I wanted to get in that spotlight column. That's really all I wanted at yeah, that time. Guitar Player Magazine. Right. Barney had the spotlight, discovered... So many players in that column. Right. Like, so my thing was, I got to get in this darn column. And so I had like only four songs that I made a demo of. And I kept sending the tape and I was, and, and I never heard nothing. And then I started flipping the order because I thought perhaps maybe he heard the first song and didn't like it. So maybe if I flip uh -huh. the order and then, he'll, you know what I'm saying? Crafty. Yeah. So I, I kept sending it. Then I got his phone number somehow, I don't know how, and I kept leaving voice messages. So eventually I kind of gave up and I was really kind of pissed, you know, I was like, you know. So I'm sitting uh, at my parents' house and the phone rings, it's my friend who's a bit older than me up in Boston. He went to Berkeley and he called me and he said, man, he said, you are really a jerk. I'm like, why? He said, how dare you not tell me that you're in Guitar Player Magazine this month? Ha. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I, I said, he's telling me, Frank Gambale is on the cover. I think it was Frank. He's telling me who's on the cover. And, he, and I said, read me the influences. Because when I did my influences, I wrote Eddie Van Halen. And then I said Carlos Montoya because I had just got one of his records. And I didn't know anything about Flamenco, but I was listening to it. And so I put those two because it seemed diverse, you know? Nice. I said, who are my influences? And he said that, and I knew he was for real. I said, read it to me. So he read it, and then I, I said, I can't believe that I'm in there. But then I said, I can't believe he didn't call me to tell me I was in there. <laughs> so then, out of the blue, a month later, I get this call from Mike Varney, and he wanted to know if I would be willing to meet up with a guitar player that lived in New Jersey, and he was talking about us doing like a duel, like a, a duo, much like what Jason and Marty did. And so I met with this guy and we hit it off and we were sending demos. And then something strange happened in the process where for every two songs uh, I would send with me and this other fella, somehow it, weeks would go by because we were in two different states. And, but I would just keep writing and I went on this thing of writing like a madman. So every week Mike would have a tape with like five new songs from me, literally every week. And so finally, he just signed me, and um, I made my first record. <laughs> That's great, man. And of course, by Jason and Marty, you mean Cacophony with um, yes, of Marty course. Friedman yeah, and yeah, Jason yeah. Becker. Yeah, yeah. I got to know, when, what inspired you to pick up the guitar first of all? Were your parents musical? Did you grow up in a musical household? Where'd really. you grow up? No, what? I'll tell you what it was. Um, my parents were music fans. My mom saw the Beatles the first time they ever came here. She saw... The Who, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, all those bands in their prime. In California or East Coast? Or? No, we're from Pennsylvania, right. Reading, Pennsylvania, which is about 45-minute drive uh, west of Philadelphia. Yeah, of course, Greg Howe's nearby. Greg Howe was in Easton. Yeah. I was in Reading. Paul Gilbert was on the other side of the state. Yeah. Vinnie Moore was just below us in Delaware. I think Marty Friedman was in Maryland. Uh, I think Tony's from back, McAlpine's from back there. All the shrapnel guys, except for Jason, we're all from, from back yeah, there yeah. in that little area for some reason. Pennsylvania you know, rocks. Well, within a 300-mile radius. But anyway, um, 
uh, I forgot what I was talking about. Okay, so about. I interrupted you, but you were talking about your mom had seen that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So she, you know, saw those, you know, acts, and, and my dad had all the soul records in the house. So I was one of those kids that loved music and just liked to sing and dance. And finally somebody said, hey, maybe you should get in piano lessons. Because I was like five years old dressing up like Kiss, holding a plastic guitar and pretending that, you know, I was singing. And I think the first thing that they bought was a little PA system. I remember a little PA system we had that was in the family room with a mic stand. And so I'd get up and sing and, and pretend I was, you know, one of the guys in KISS. And then I took piano lessons when I was five and did not take to it. And then about a year later or a year and a half later, I saw a guitar at a yard sale. And I realized that's what I wanted to do. We found a teacher, took the guitar in and realized that this guitar was unplayable. And um, so we went out that night and bought a Gibson Marauder, which uh, became my main guitar until I was about 12 or 13, because by then my parents knew I was serious about it. And they went out to buy me a Les Paul, and the guy at the music store convinced them that the Yamaha SG2000, which was much better than Les Paul because Carlos Santana was playing it. Oh, man. So that became my main guitar. And um, yeah, so that's the beginning. And what, who was the first player that ever really inspired you, whether it could be in a lick you heard on the radio? or Well, you know, it's interesting because I was always like, I was kind of diluted a little bit because I was more into like a lot of things, like bands and songs and stuff that I thought yeah. sounded cool. So like, for example, I was completely out of touch with guitar players until much later. I didn't hear, I didn't know who Eddie Van Halen was until I heard the Beat It solo. And we were driving somewhere and I made them, you know, they were going to turn the car off. And I said, no, 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 wait. And when I heard that, I wanted to know who it was. And I thought it was Brad Gillis because I had the Ozzy Live record that I played constantly. So I was all, you know, mixed up. Then when I found Van Halen, I, I you know, I was totally you know, got obsessed with trying to figure out what he was doing. Um, Steve Morris, I remember trying to learn Blood Sucking Leeches, the drag song. Yeah. And then uh, um, Steve Vai, I remember at one point when I was much younger, I learned, um, he had a song called The Attitude Song. Sure. And I remember figuring out pieces of that. But then I listened to like Gino Vanelli too. Like, remember that song, Appaloosa? Yeah, yeah. And it, that had a great guitar solo in it. Band is amazing. Talking Book was a record that I played constantly. The song Maybe Your Baby when I was a kid. I Stevie Wonder. Constantly played that, so, you know. Dude, get me fired up. Let's play a Stevie Wonder jam for a second. I love Stevie, anything. Oh, 
out of thin uh, air i wasn't expecting to sing either i got that uh, coffee voice thanks for reminding me about your singing like how the singing just gets better and better at each album and it's always been great where did you when did you start singing like well you know the truth of the matter is is when i was in my cover band uh when i was a teenager we had a cover band that played four nights a week at the height of it and i was like 15 to 17 that era of my life and we were playing all over the place. And there were two songs that I would sing. Not very well, but I would put the guitar down and, and get up and do the front man gag. And so I was, yeah. I was a ham and you know people loved it and whatever. But the, really the way it came about, um, after I made that first record, um, I really instantly realized I do not want to play this kind of music. Whatever that first record was, whatever you call that kind of music, that's not what I want to do. Because I was coming out of a band that played like normal rock songs and R&B songs. And we had an amazing, versatile female singer that went from singing Aretha Franklin to Dio. And it was just really great. Um, and it's like, I want to do my own music, but it, someone needs to be singing. I, I can't just whittle, you know, right. for, for, for an hour here. So um, I started writing vocal songs. I started sending those to Mike Varney because that was my label, and he agreed it, I should do a vocal record. And um, I was getting different guys. I had two guys that were local guys that I worked with that I liked, and I was having both of them sing, trying to decide who would sing on my record. And for whatever reason, and these guys were really good singers, the, the label head, Mike, wasn't feeling it. He's like, you know, they both sing really, really well, but I just don't know that either one of them are the kind of voice that I, you know, want to hear on this music. And so he's writing the check, so I got to do what he says. He said, uh, but I have an idea. He said, I think you should be the singer. And I'm like, really? He said, yeah. He said, I think you could do it. He said, you know, think about who you like. You know, what, what bands do you like? And I said, well, I like this, I like that. So he started telling me some records to listen to. I, I got really into Paul Rogers. I got really into nice. um, Rod Stewart, you know, early Rod Stewart. Uh, what was it? Every Picture Tells a Story, right? That record. Um, and then I started really getting into it. And so I went out to, um, to L.A. I stopped in L.A. to do a, a magazine cover story for Guitar World with me and Nuno and Reb. And we were like, I don't know, it was called The New Faces of Metal or whatever it was. And so they did an interview. And I didn't speak much in the interview because you know, I was kind of intimidated. But I flew up to San Francisco and started working on, on my vocal record. And so on that, that record was called Fever Dream. And um, that must have been 1990 or 91, maybe 90. I don't remember exactly. It had to be 90. And, um, and so that was it. I, I started really taking it seriously and singing. And, but the, first, the, the, the singer that really 
that I got obsessed with trying to learn every single thing he did was Terrence Trent Darby. Yeah, when yeah. Introducing the Hardline came out, um, I went through that record from top to bottom, and, and I tried <laughs> to learn every single lick on the record. Yeah, yeah. I, remember, I remember that record. I remember uh, buying it for my girlfriend because she was in love with that song. Uh, I have a funny story. Um, yeah. Sometimes your name crossed my heart. Um, but I wanted to tell you there was yeah. a record that I did with uh, Stevie Salas, and um, we did a cover of a Dorothy Moore song called I Don't Want to Be With Nobody But You. So if you asked me to sing it now, I couldn't do it because it's super high. That's a song you got to warm up for. But uh, I covered it, and I was looking for a bass player. By then, I was signed to Geffen, and uh, I was about to go in and make my record for Geffen. And it was me and Atma and Noor who needed the bass player. I played a lot of Gus Atma because I'm from the Bay Area. Yeah, Atma, Diz, Dizmore, the whole crew. Diz says hi, by the way. Yeah, great guys. I spent a lot of time up there too, so I've got little crew up there but so anyway the point of talking about Terrence and this song that I did for Stevie Salas um, I'm out on the street with Stevie and this kid cool looking dude long hair back then had I had long hair we all had long hair comes up and he's talking to Stevie he recognized him man there's a song on your new record is that Terrence Trent Darby singing that song and I'm looking I, I know Terrence isn't on the record and I'm thinking he must be talking about me and then it was, and, and, it's, and Stevie goes, well, no, that's Richie Kotzen singing. He's standing right here, and this guy didn't know who I was. And then so me and him became friends. His name was John. So then we, we had a band with John, Atma, and I. And him, but my point is I was so obsessed yeah. with trying to sound like Terrence <laughs> Trent Darby at that time. You know, that, that, that's, that's really win. where I got well, my... Well, you are officially soulful <laughs> if somebody mistakes you for Terrence Trent Darby. I mean, come right. on. It was a big compliment. And, and you know, I get, I get annoyed when people compare me to guys that I didn't listen to. It's like, come on, man. If you're going to compare me to someone, compare me to the dude that I ripped the shit off because I'll tell you where I get the shit, you know. <laughs> well, you have but, a true vibrato. A lot of people who try to start singing later, they don't really, they do a good job maybe, but you're a true singer. I, you know, I mean, it's all about what you come up, like, it's like what I like. Like, what, like <sighs> I love Rod Stewart's tone. I love Paul Rogers' phrasing. You know, I like the, what Terrence can do with his voice for falsetto and rap. So, yeah, and I grew up hearing all this, these R&B guys when I was a kid living, listening to Philadelphia radio. So, I just sound like what the hell I like. You know what I mean? There's something about Philly, man. I swear, definitely. Something in the radio stations and the water and the yeah. sandwiches. We have great <laughs> bread. You know, I'll tell you something. When I go home, and my mom always has an Italian sandwich waiting for me, and there's something about the way those sandwiches taste back there that it's radically different than here. And I've been trying to figure it out for years, and then finally I figured it's the bread. There's something about the bread that's different in that area, New York, Pennsylvania. Tap water. It's the tap water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. So, do you just have all these instruments set up when you're recording? And I mean, when you're doing your album, and if so, where did you record the album? I will tell you. Um, basically, uh, I lived in the same house for like 21 years. I just moved here, where we are now. But anyway, uh, in that house, I had a, a full-functioning studio. And all the equipment was on all the time and mic'd up and always ready to go. So um, the way I record and the way I work is sometimes I have an idea 
and I'll just go in and, and do it. Like the song Grammy I talked about before, yeah. I literally woke up at 3.30 in the morning and I just went, had the idea, and bang, it, w- it was there. I recorded it. And by 7.30 in the morning, w- it was done. So what you hear on the record... Even the mix? Everything. It was done. And I actually posted it on the internet on YouTube. It was done. And so right. that was that fast. Uh, not everything happens that way. Sometimes I go in and I have an idea or a concept like the song. This will be really interesting. The song, This Is Life. I went in the studio one night, buzzed. I had been drinking a little bit. And I had this concept in my head of a song. So I went behind the drum set. And my concept in the moment was to morph an R&B jam into a thrash metal jam. So I was playing... And I was thinking about like D'Angelo and you know yeah. some of these people that I really like. And I was hearing the band and I'm playing the drums, no click track, and I'm doing all the hits and the stops and I'm hearing this melody. And, and then I just busted into this crazy thrash thing, right? And then I'm back to the R&B thing. In my mind, I'm, I'm messing around. It's almost like I'm doing this as a parody. So I go back in the other room, take the bass, throw down some bass. I doubled a couple things an octave higher on the bass to make it sound big. Sounds huge. I do that all the time. Um, I have so many tricks with the bass guitar, which we can get into. It's really fun. But um, I did that. And then I had the guitar overdubbed a clean guitar. And then I overdubbed the distorted guitar for the thrash part. And then the last thing I did was do a crazy vocal with a lot of the melody that you hear on the final, but then some crazy yeah. screaming for the thrash thing. So that lived on my hard drive for who knows how long. And one night I had friends over and I said, oh, you want to hear my new record? And I was joking because this song sounded so crazy with the thrash part and then the R&B thing. And I'm singing, but I'm not singing words, you know. So I play it and a couple of the folks were, um, a couple of the folks were uh, liking it. You know, they're like, oh my God, that's amazing. Are you kidding me? He's like, no, you should develop that. That's a whole new thing for you. So what had happened when when I was in Japan, I heard about Prince dying and it really hit me really hard and so I came home and and forgot about the song I forgot about everything and I went back to working on my music and so um, I uh, found that track again and I thought you know I should work on this but I'm gonna take out the thrash metal element of it because it's pretty silly so I took it that out and then I um, developed it I put the piano on I, I wanted, decided I wanted to have that outro with a long solo, so I went back behind the drums and put that in. And then I wrote the song, and I wrote the words, and blah, 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 and, and created it, did some editing. But the point is, is what, what makes it really possible for me to function the way I do is that everything is always mic'd and always ready to go. So I can literally yeah. do a drum track now and come back three months later, you know, and put the mics where they belong if they got moved or whatever, tune something here or there and, and put a drum fill in. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And in the end, it sounds like it was all done at once, but that allows me so much freedom and no one would ever know that had I not t- told them. You know? Dude, yeah, that's, that's really amazing. And, and the song sounds amazing too. It's like total gospel, almost gospel R&B yeah. vibe. Yeah. Oh, it's a mystery.
What did you run into as far as a recording deck or Pro well, Tools? You or? know, the drums, the drum signal path, I have API for the drums, kick, snare, and then the overheads I run through like a tube manly preamp. And then for the toms, I have like the Focusrite Blue. So, I, and that's that's the rig that's always there. And my bass, the direct part of it goes through one of those blue Focusrite channel strips. It has EQ compression and everything. And then I usually run like a bass through an amp tube, like a guitar amp, just to have the top end, you know? Yeah, you want to have all that stuff set up. You know, that'll take you 40 minutes to set it up, and that's the idea important. is gone. It doesn't change. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the luxury. Now, here at the new house, I don't have a studio right now, but I don't need one because I'm about to go on tour. But eventually, I'll have one. <laughs> Speaking of which, you are hitting the planet starting April. Going to be here in LA, April 21st, Canyon Club, all over the place. Hitting Brazil starting July 5th. Yeah. Europe starting August 30th. We're going to Australia. We're going to Japan. I've never been to Australia. That's going to be cool. That's great. And then we're doing Europe, of course. So I'm excited. There's a lot. Um, you know what I'm excited about? I was going to say there's a lot of shows that we've booked, but I'm really excited about the set because... Usually with my trio in the old days, we just get up and kind of jam. I mean, literally, I would call tunes because yeah. they know so. We've been playing together so long, they know so many of my songs, and that was kind of fun, you know, kind of free and loose. But now, like, we're doing like seven songs from the new record. Normally, I'd do like one or two, so we got seven songs from the new record. Plus, I'm doing a lot of piano stuff. I've got like four or five songs where I'm at the piano. Fantastic. And I've got um, an acoustic section where. Dylan plays upright bass. So who's in your band? Dylan Wilson is the bass player, and he told me he said, "Man, you realize in October, I'll have been with you for six years," and and then the drummer Mike Bennett's been with me even longer, and they're great. They grew up playing together. You know, they're young awesome. guys that came up together playing jazz actually. So they have the ability to just really read me like a book when I'm playing, and every move they make just elevates the song and just makes me play better it's fantastic to have them sweet now when you're on your uh, record did you record into pro tools or what was your yeah pro tools yeah. and what was your main guitar amp on i mean i, I assume there's some different flavors on there's, there but. you know and it's hard for me to to know you know i because i so many things have been done at different times yeah. like the song make it easy that yeah. was the cornford uh actually that was before the signature cornford that was the cornford uh 50 watt amp that they used to make then like on the newer stuff, I was playing the low wattage Marshalls, like the 1974X combo. There's a head version of that that has a solid state rectifier. I put that through a 212. And you mostly use your Fender signature models? Or? I use my Fender Telecaster signature. I use my white Strat. Um, I have a purple sparkle Strat that I use a lot. Yeah. Um, I love that guitar. I use that hollow body electric Yamaha that's sitting there, that black one. Um, a lot for chords and like background stuff acoustic guitar i have a taylor 12 fret that i used on the record which is really cool because the neck joins the body at the 12th fret so it's kind of like this compact yeah. little guitar it's really cool 
Really beautiful, yeah. And I imagine you're still having a great relationship with our friend Larry Tamarzio. Yes, yes. Had a bunch of Tamarzio pickups happening. Great wine and uh, <laughs> hit me to a really cool cheese place in Beverly Hills. So he's great. He's like family. You know, he's one of my first endorsements. Great was, dude. Was Larry Tamarzio and uh, and Diodario as well. Great companies, just yeah. fantastic family companies. You know, you can't top that. I love that tuner you installed on your telly there, the automatic. This is cool. Who I makes that it. again? I don't think like, they're around anymore. If they are, I'm sorry for saying that. But it's a company called N-Tune. Yeah, yeah, N-T-U-N-E. Yeah, yeah. And they really <laughs> they really um, came up with something cool, you know. And I actually found it on the internet and bought a bunch of them. And then they found out that I bought them. So, oh, we'll give them to you. So they gave me a couple. So I have a bunch of guitars that have them in. But... Um, I don't know where to buy them anymore. I don't yeah. know if they still make them. Look at this dog. He, well, <laughs> that dog is sweet. I'm trying to. I'm trying to play, and it's like you're trying to play. He's literally got his snout on the pickups on a string. Now, where did you start getting your legato approach? Would you? Can you narrow that? Because it's something honestly, very. That's something that that um was easy to do. You know, like a lot of guys like. Certain yeah. things come easier than others. Yeah. And so then I, I didn't work at the alternate picking at all. And I just did the legato because yeah. it was easy. And I don't know. And it's one of those things I never knew that I had legato until yeah. someone said, wow, you do a lot of stuff with your left hand. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and it was probably jamming with Greg years ago. He was probably the one that said, oh, you really do a lot of stuff without picking, you know? Yeah, that's you know, I went to India with Greg for a week. He did like five shows in India. Oh, that's his cool. His keyboard player couldn't go, so I was like the second instrument. Did you play keyboards? No, no, I just played rhythm guitar. I can't play keyboards. Awesome. Shit. <laughs> that was an adventure. But uh, you, I love the, the feel on This Is Life. I don't know if that's something you wanted to play over. I don't know, know it on guitar. I can play it on the piano, though. I think the solo. Aren't you doing some over this? Oh, yeah. I can see... Singer. Oh, I see. You 
make me want to play more soulfully. I really yeah, you know, appreciate I that. Like, I, I just have this like, um, you know, thing that when I started singing, it changed my guitar playing. It it literally took me from like constantly like have feeling that feeling of I got to play something to like no you don't you cannot yeah. play for a minute like there's a reason that, that they have the little squiggly thing that's called yeah. a rest it's effective you know so that's something that I you know when I started really taking singing seriously in my late teens early 20s it changed my guitar playing like you know completely radically so Fantastic. I don't know I I think that a lot of times when you're young especially when you're playing rock hard rock there's this feeling of like urgency like you have to fill every space but it's really great to sometimes do nothing and then wait and then an idea can develop you know this new record sounds so wonderful in, in that it's just very simple and open and there's so much power in every note whether you're singing or whether it's a bass note or yeah. whether it's a drum hit so bass is my one of my favorites if i wasn't I, think, I, I love bass guitar, and I'm lucky because yeah. I got to play with some great guys. You know, Stanley Clark, T.M. Stevens, obviously Billy Sheehan and I play yeah. together a lot. So, But when I do the bass, it's such a big part of my music, actually. If you listen to the record, you'll notice the bass is, is really clear and up front, and the guitar sounds are, are, are not necessarily the kind of typical rock sounds where you, you know layered and doubled and all that stuff because so much of the song is driven by the bass line like you mentioned the song i've got you yeah if you listen to that you know the the bass line is almost you know the what is the chord you know this is all about yeah. the chord change it's simple but when the song kicks in the bass is what drives the damn thing you know yeah, yeah. and that just is a pattern that goes I sing more but my voice is a little fried teach me I'd love to hit that note full voice, but it ain't gonna happen now. <laughs> I mean, once you get fired but up. But anyway, I just want to demonstrate like the guitar part is simple. Yeah. You know? And another thing that's kind of cool that no one knows is that guitar solo. You'll never believe where I did that and what I played through when I did it. In Osaka, Japan, in my hotel, oh, Tokyo rather, in Tokyo, Japan, in my hotel room, looking out at the skyscrapers, on my laptop and I had this thing that they sent me uh, a positive grid uh, effect plug-in right and it was not the amp plug-in it was a little pedal and I put the little pedals together and I had this cool lead tone so that all the whole lead guitar the part that goes 
you know, that's the that. hook right there. That's the hook. And then you've got the, you got the solo, of course, which um, I wouldn't dare play that, and I have no idea what I did. But that all was done in the hotel room on the little laptop with that thing. No amp, just direct. And then the vocals in this part, where it goes... Come, come back to me, come, come back to me, yeah, I know, I know. That whole section. That's yeah. me with a Samson, you know, microphone yeah. plugged into my laptop. And I, I sang it and I doubled it like, I don't know, four times. And then I did the harmony and doubled that. So I stacked like all these vocals. So that was cut in the hotel room too. So it's pretty funny. Amazing, yeah. The tone is killer on, on that whole song from the intro, and then the solo tone is pretty crazy. Thanks. I noticed that. I like that. So that, that yeah. song, uh, and we learned it. It's not in the set right now, but I'm sure we'll end up playing it. Right. Opening for the Rolling Stones. What was that like? I think you had my friend Billy Sheehan on bass. I did. You know, that was one of those things that I didn't tell anybody I was doing it until after I did the first show. Because in my mind, I was convinced that I was going to get there and they were going to be like, oh, no, 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 we don't want this guy getting on stage. So after I did it, then I was like, okay, I did it. So now even if I get thrown off the tour, who cares? I did it. I opened for the Stones under my own name, you know, not as a part of anybody else's organization, you know. And so that was really cool. That was um, Japan, right? And String the, of shows. What I was told, yeah, like five or six shows. I guess in Japan, it's not common to have an opening act. So I was the only actor that ever opened for that band in that country, which is pretty cool. Um, got to meet them. Ron Wood uh, watched one of my sets, and at the end, when I met everybody, he came up to me and he said, he said, oh my God, your voice. And he put his hand on my throat. And he looked at Mick and he said, did you hear him sing? <laughs> and, and he... and, and um, and Mick Jagger said, no, I didn't. And, and Ron Wood said, he sounds like a cross between Bernard and Rod. And he was talking about Bernard Fowler, who's a friend of mine who sings with the Stones. He sang with them forever. And obviously Rod Stewart. So for me, that was like the biggest compliment. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah coming so, from Ron Wood. Yeah, my ego was out of control. And then I went and sat on the side of the stage and I was there. My brought my dad with me. So my dad and I were sitting back there behind Keith... You know, Keith's amps and there was a little spot where Ron could see that we were there and he looked during the show and kind of waved and gave me a thumbs up so it was kind of <laughs> cool man hell yeah were and you able to connect with the audiences you think out there yeah I did I mean you know I was I was playing in a stadium a, a indoor stadium so it was just like this echoey you know I didn't have in-ears I could hear everything fantastic but you have to be aware that you're hearing slap back and it's kind of crazy. Yeah. But I could hear them cheering every now and then. You know, we had some big jam se you know, sections that we do. And so um, it was fun, you know. Um, and then it was weird. After that, I, I stopped going to Japan for a long time. It was 2006. And I really didn't go back do much in Japan until I went with the winery dogs. I started focusing on other markets. I spent a lot of time in South America, a lot of time in Europe. You know, cultivating those markets. You're amazingly international, man. Um, so, you're an international yeah. man of guitar <laughs> mystery. Yeah, gangster, dude. What about playing with Poison? When what? You, what was like? Yeah, the call for that. How did you feel? What? What, what, was, what was that day like? You know, to make a really long story short, I was signed to Interscope Records. I had been out here for a year. I was all ready to make this record that was going to be like this awesome R&B rock record. I was so excited. I had Danny Korchmar lined up to be my producer. We were picking songs. He had a, a budget that was reasonable back then. 
Everything was approved. We're ready to go. And at the last minute, Interscope said, Richie, we're not letting you make this kind of record. We signed you to be a rock guy. And I'm not going to have you be a balladeer. It was the word that they used. And I flipped out. I was so frustrated because I was fighting, trying to nut getting. I wanted to get away from the, the metal rock thing because I didn't feel it. I didn't connect with it. I wanted to do something more like, you know, if Daryl Hall could shred yeah. on the guitar. That's where my mind was at 19, 20 years old when I was signed to Interscope. And so I flipped out and I was like, man, we got like a genius willing to produce me with Danny Korchmar and you're, what are you doing? You know, and I flipped out. And I was like, you know what? You guys don't know what to do with me. Just drop me. Let me out of my contract. And I was kind of cocky. I figured I'm young enough for someone else will come along and sign me. During that process, the A&R guy was really, really cool, really nice. Um, super powerful guy and he said you know he said i could really ruin your life right now and hold you to this contract i'm gonna let you go i'm gonna let you go but i'm gonna tell you something and i think you should do it brett michaels has been calling me about you now this man used to work at capitol and he used to work with brett and brett knew about me from being in the guitar magazines you know by then i had the cover with nuno and this and that and things were happening he said whether you like it or not, you should go out to his house and meet with him and hear what he has to say. They, he wants you to play in his band. So I drove out to Calabasas, sat down with Brett, and I was like, I hit it off with the guy. Like, really liked him a lot. And his attitude was, we want to take the band in a new direction. Uh, we want your input. Um, Tom was the A&R guy. He said, he sent me some of your music that you're working on. Um, we want you to write with us. We want you to be in the band. So... I flew back to Philadelphia, I thought about it, came back to LA and um, went to audition with them. I went to the audition and I had to play Poison songs, obviously. First thing that happened, I had an old vintage Marshall head. I went yeah. in, smoke started coming out of it, so I couldn't use my amp, so I plugged That's in. That's bad, right? Yeah, it's bad. So I used some kind of weird crate, something or other, something much cheaper than what I had. And I went to play their songs and I thought I knew them. But I didn't. I was making mistakes left and right. And uh, it was really quite embarrassing that I couldn't get through a Poison song without screwing up a chord here or there. And Brett kind of laughed at us. I said, well, I know you're talented. He said, you're not playing our songs correctly, but do you have any, anything of your own? And I had Stand that yeah, I was working yeah. on, and I played that. And then I had the riff to this song, Fire and Ice. <laughs> And I had the, the verse and the chorus. Um, Both of which became like top 20 singles. Yeah. So singles. I, Lately, I can tell that something ain't right. I don't see the fire when I look in your eyes. I played those two songs and, and that's how I got the gig. You know, they, they toyed around with me. They looked at one other guy who was a friend of mine at the time um, and then they called me back again. And so when they told me I had the gig, it was kind of comical. We're sitting on the sofa and Brett's like, well, you know, Richie, you gotta understand something about the band. You know, we're a band that, it's like a real band. Like we came out from Pennsylvania together and we lived in the warehouse. And, you know, to meet someone that really fits in with us is difficult. And he's talking to me in a way he's about to tell me they, they don't want me. So I interrupt him. 
When I'm like 21 <laughs> years old, I nah, Brett, I tell you, I, I got it. You don't, you don't want me in the band. I understand. Don't worry about it. You know, I'll go do my own thing. And, and, and Brett goes, well, it's not that. The, the question I have for you is, is how do you feel headlining arenas and making millions of dollars? Is that something that appeals to you? <laughs> and I'm like, and they, they stood up and said, welcome to Poison. And, and that's, that's how they, you know, told me I had the gig. So they were jokers. Yeah, they were, yeah. Well, that's where you get it from. All you guys, yeah. freaking jokers. It's a Pennsylvania thing, I have a feeling. <laughs> What's the craziest prank you ever remember happening on a rock and roll gig or in anywhere? <laughs> well, the pr- craziest prank I did to Brett Michaels was in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And he used to come out at the end of the night in uh, boxers. You know, underwear. Last song of them. Come out, and we had this big triangle in the center of the stage. He'd go out there, and he'd put his arms up, you know, like this, and the lights would come down, and the fucking fans would scream. One night, Bobby and I walk out, and we look at each other, and we look at, I, I, I look at his, you know, and he's like, he goes, yeah, do it. So I walk, and we both grabbed his shorts, bang, right down <laughs> to his ankles. And he's like, oh. And what was funny was, he was, uh, he thought it was funny. He went backstage, yeah. and my guy, I wish you would have told me you were going to do that because it was so friggin' cold and everything was so shriveled up down there. He said, how embarrassing. You know, you, if I knew you were going to do that, I would have prepared for it, whatever that means. But Yeah, well, we don't know, know how that works. In that, front of- yeah, that's my best prank. <laughs> Did you ever get pranked yourself? Anyone surprised? Man, you? I'm so far ahead of everything when it comes to pranking because that's all I do is, you know, I mean, I, I had these fake teeth I used to run around with. I mean, I created chaos down at the baked potato one night with these teeth and what? got thrown out. I had uh, two state police officers back in Pennsylvania come to the house because of these teeth, and one of my family re- uh, members didn't recognize me. I mean, I have these fake teeth. I have a whole character named Kent. Um, but the, the story from the baked potato is one of the best. Back then, I was living at the house you went to today, right, at that right. hill. And so... I had these fake teeth and I thought, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to dress up like a, like my character, which is like a dirty kind of, looks like I've been working on a car all day long, you know, put the fake teeth in. I had a deck at the old house that I was staining. So I took the shirt that I was using, an old white t-shirt covered in deck stain, put that on. I also had put a new step out behind the garage. So the shoes that I used were covered in concrete and the <laughs> pants had pieces of concrete at the bottom and holes in them. So I put that on. I had a rainbow bar and grill hat and some clear glasses that looked like they could have been prescription. And then I popped the teeth in. Have and what five, do these teeth look like? This no, fucked up rotten I'll, teeth? I'll, I'll show. I'll find them before you leave. They make you look like you have rotten teeth. And when I, when I put them in, I speak differently. Um, yeah, shit. So, yeah, let me get them because it'll help with the story. Dude, this is incredible. No, absolutely. You just have them in, you just got them in your drawer in like the kitchen. So when I put these teeth in, I become a different character, basically. I become Kent Stanfield. Now, Kent Stanfield yeah, has, <laughs> has a song on, on iTunes. If you Google Kent Stanfield, uh, there's a song where I'm playing banjo, and <laughs> it's called Jesus in the Way. So when you guys get done with the, you know, looking into what Richie Kotzen does, you might want to take a, a listen to me, uh, Kent Stanfield, and, and Google me on that iTunes and get my song, Jesus in the Way. I've been trying to do what the devil says to do, but Jesus keeps on getting in the way. I've been trying to do what sweet Satan tells me to, but the good Lord keeps on fucking up my day. But anyway, I, I went into the baked potato, and I was in character, of course, being me being me. Wearing all that shit. Yep, and, and uh, I go to the front door, and uh, I try to get in. 
and uh, I have a $5 bill, and he tells me the cover charge is $10. Well, I've been trying to do what the devil says to do, but Jesus keeps on getting in the way. So uh, I look, and Slash is on stage playing, and I got the $5 bill, and I go, holy shit, is that Slash? And I literally push through to try to, you know, rush the stage, but I know he's going to hold me back. See, wait. I'll take these out because then I can talk normal. <laughs> so I, I know I know I'm going to rush the stage, but he's going to hold me back. So that that happens. He physically grabs yeah. me, pushes me back. So I say, "Hey man, come on! I got five dollars. I'll buy a beer. You'll get my money. I don't have ten, and because I didn't, I just had this one bill. And he goes, "I can't let you in. You got to pay the damn cover charge." So he said, "Get out of here." So okay. So now I'm pissed. I can't get in. So I go back outside and I walked down there. So I got to walk all the way back up Kentucky Drive onto my street and I get up to the top go back home and I'm like this sucks man I gotta get in this club I, I need to create some chaos down there so I go and I find five dollars and quarters so now I got ten dollars on me put the quarters in I walk back down the hill I don't know what's funnier are you doing this or that you don't have fucking ten dollars exactly. anywhere or an ATM card right? no, I don't use ATM <laughs> cards so I, I go down to the bottom of the hill and um, I, I, I go back it's a different door guy I see, he sees me. I said, he said, $10. I said, I got your money right here. I said, here's five. So he takes the five. I said, hold out your hand. He said, why? I said, just hold your hands out. So he puts his hands out, and I dump you know, all this change, $5 in change in his hands. So he's there counting it out. Meanwhile, the guy that threw me out for trying to rush the stage says, looks at him. He comes over. He said, what the hell are you doing? He said, I threw this guy out of here. He said, well, he just paid the cover. And he said, take your money. You're not coming in here, you know? You know, you know, welcome here. So I start screaming while the band's playing. I said, that's discrimination. I gave you $10. How are you not going to let me in? And now I'm legitimately <laughs> pissed, but I'm still in character talking like Kent. So <laughs> they throw me out. They, they've given me my money back, and they, they just tell me to get the hell out of here. So I go around the back. So I'm standing in the back. I hear the band stops. So everybody comes out back. They're all there smoking cigarettes, and there's like a brick wall there. You know how the big potato is. Yeah, yeah. So I'm standing there, and I look, and there's this drummer, Matt Logg, who knows me from before. And he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and he goes, Richie, is that you? <laughs> he recognized it. And I go like this, shh. I said, don't tell anyone. He said, I got to get you in here. He said, go, come in. I said, I can't. I said, they threw me out twice. I said, the one guy looks like he'll punch me if I come back. And he goes, don't worry. He said, come in this way. I'm taking you right on stage. You're going to play in that outfit. <laughs> so I go in through the back. He takes me up on stage. It's Johnny Grapark's playing bass. He's on drums. I think Teddy was playing piano. Teddy Andrea. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Matt's like, I found this guy outside. He says he can play guitar. Let's play Red House. I don't even know how to play Red House, to be honest. So there was another guy playing rhythm. So he starts, and I start playing. I swear to God, I don't know what I did, but I did a solo that everyone in the audience screamed at a level when it, when it was over. After the solo, not the song, the solo, they screamed at a level that I've never had anyone cheer for me as <laughs> Richie Kotzen after a solo at the level they cheered. And so I, I was like a hit. And people loved me. So I come off the stage, I got the teeth in, there's one guy there that looks like he's dressed like he's out, you know, from West Hollywood, real, you know, like the way I'm dressed right yeah. now. So, you know, the hip guy wants me to join his band, this and that. I'm, I stink. I hadn't had a shower. I look like a <laughs> bum. I've got soot. I didn't tell you this. Yeah. To really be in character, I reached in the fireplace and put soot on my face. So I look dirty. <laughs> I smell dirty. 
the the kicker was is the girl behind the bar after i took the teeth out everyone's laughing oh my god richie what a great prank the girl behind the bar after i played tells her girlfriend my god that guy's really good he kind of looks like an ugly richie cotson <laughs> so you know these teeth I, there's so many i mean i could give you a day's worth of stories that oh, that's the chaos I've created with these teeth. You got to sing that a cover of that heart song, but change it to these teeth. Well, dude, thanks so much for being on the show, brother. All right, man. Thank so, you for having me. Take it out a little bit. Yeah. You know, what would be cool is if uh, we switch amps for a second and, you, and the listeners would love to hear you rock out with some distortion. Let's do that. Let's switch. Talking about Rod Stewart earlier, we could jam out on that. Actually, it's a Temptation song. But he covered it.